So what are three words you would use to describe yourself? What are three words you would use to describe yourself? That was a question I saw in an interview I was reading this week, and the person being interviewed responded with these three words, hardworking, meticulous, and friendly. Three good words. I mean, if you don't know anything about this person, those three words give us a pretty good snapshot of who they are. And those three simple words also remind us that you don't have to say a lot to say a lot, right? A little more than 400 years ago, William Shakespeare and Henry V wrote these words, men of few words are the best men. And the Duke, John Wayne, said, talk low, talk slow, and don't say too much. That's terrible, John Wayne, sorry. Thought I'd give it a try. Now, I don't tend to talk slow, but if you're doing the math, I probably would not be one of Shakespeare's best men because this sermon is going to have more than a few words. Not too many, but more than just a few. My hope, though, is that just three words will grab your attention. That just three words today will be the kind of words that that capture your heart and your soul and your mind. Three words that you would tattoo on your brain. Three words that you would marinate on. Three words that you would use to describe yourself. And if you can use these three words that we're going to look at, if you can use these three words to describe yourself, then you will experience the most satisfying freedom that has ever been known in the universe, and you'll experience it over and over and over again. They're three pretty powerful words. So what are those words? Well, let's find out. One day Jesus was teaching a crowd of people, and he was telling them a parable, a story with an important truth for life. This parable was about a father and his two sons. The younger son went to his dad one day and, and demanded his inheritance. Now, in ancient times, to do that was rude and mean and disrespectful and really just hateful because it was as if what he did was he went to his dad and goes, you know what, I just wish you were dead because if you were dead, I'd, I'd have my money. I wouldn't have to wait to get the money I'm looking for. It wasn't just against his dad, though. To say something like that would be another way of sending a message to the rest of his family. Hey, you know, I don't care about you guys either, you know. I don't care what happens to y'all. I don't care about the family land or the family business. Yeah, I, I just don't care. It would be the kind of thing that would not just make you the black sheep of the family, but the, the black sheep jerk of the family. And so the customs of the time, and even today, it would have been fine for the father just to kick the son out, you know, just get out, to write him out of the will completely. But in a bit of a, a strange way, a, a, an ounce of unique mercy, God actually gave the son his inheritance. And the son took the money and he went away to a far country and he blew it all on a wild life of extravagance and immorality. He lost everything. He was desperate and he was absolutely destitute. He got a job somehow feeding some pigs, but it didn't pay enough for him to go buy his own food, so he was still starving. And the guy in charge of the pigs would not even let him eat the food that he was feeding the pigs. So that's where we find him, standing in a pig pen, standing in some pig slop, trying to figure out in his mind how in the world he got there. 
and really saying to himself, what am I doing here? Let me ask you a question. Are, are you having some moments like that? Have you had some moments like that? Where because of a, a bad decision or a sinful decision, because of the normal circumstances of life, or maybe some not-so-normal circumstances, maybe some events happened that were outside of your control, and because of one of those things, you have found yourself sitting there going, man, what happened? What am I doing here? How, how did I get here? And what am I going to do? Maybe you're having a moment like that this morning, this week. Maybe you're a little afraid you're having a moment like that come your way this week. In that moment of the story, when all of that unfolds, when the son is standing in the pig pen, Jesus says this in the middle of the parable. Listen to verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. In the middle of the consequences of his sin, he doesn't start blaming other people. He doesn't say, gosh, my dad, what was he thinking? Why did he give me that money? I mean, my older brother, why did he let my dad do that? But they know how I am. They should have had an intervention. They should have done everything they could to, to steer me away from this. They should have given me better advice. They should have helped me avoid this. Just so you know, when, when we're making the bad decisions of life, generally speaking, there is always at least one person saying or doing those things. It's just we're not listening. We've all been there. And if you haven't been there, you'll, you'll be there eventually where grace and mercy are coming to us through lots of different people, but we don't want it. And so we just ignore it. And what we do in that moment is we're saying, I would rather stay in the pig pen. I think I'd rather stay in the slop. The son came to his senses. He realized his sin didn't make a lick of sense. It, it didn't make any sense what he was doing. And when he came to his senses, what was one of the first things that he thought about? He thought about home. He, he thought about his home. He thought about his father. He thought about the, the life that he used to have. And here's what's weird about that. According to his actions, he hated that life. I mean, he hated everything about it. That's why he was trying to get out. He hated his father's home. He hated his father's ways. He hated his father's rules and his father's advice. He hated the family business, didn't want to have anything to do with it, and he hated that boring hometown of his. So he wanted to get out, and he did. He got out. He got out, and, and he got off in a far country and got everything that he thought he wanted. And then in that far country, he lost it all. He lost everything that he had. And the first thing that came to his mind was the place that he hated. The place he was trying so hard to get out of and get away from, that was the first place he thought of when he came to his senses. Rod Mattoon says this, the far country is not hard to find. In fact, you can enter it right where you are living. You do not have to go to a city known for its wickedness. You can even be a member of a good church, even teach a Sunday school class and live in a far country. 
There have been preachers who lived in the far country but preached in pulpits every Sunday. The far country is an attitude of a person's heart, mind, soul, will, and desires. People that live in a far country from the Father are living in rebellion against the will of God and the Word of God. And then he says this, the distance into the far country is measured by the distance between a person and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the distance. So, if you were to look at your own life with honest eyes, are you in a far country? Are, are you living your life your way? Are you living a, a wild or, or semi-wild life and you're planning on getting back into gear with God a little later? Another parable that Jesus told has a, a word for that mindset. Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Look, it's not wise to settle up with God later. It's a bad move. No, we, we turn to God today. We don't, we don't wait. Or maybe your far country is, is not a wildlife. Maybe your far country is, is right in the church. You're a pretty good moral person. You, you pretty much obey all the, the law of the land and even the laws of the church. You're doing all right, and, and you don't mind doing the things that God asks as long as God doesn't want to change your schedule or change the way that you normally make decisions. There's a parable from Jesus that, that has a word for that mindset. It goes like this. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Yeah, don't be foolish. Don't, don't confess and obey toward God when it's convenient. Now the call is for us to surrender our all to him today and now and to continue. Maybe your far country doesn't look like the church. It doesn't look like the, the wildlife. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Just remember this. The far country is not the outside picture. It's the inside picture. So using that language again, if your heart was honest with you, What's the distance today between you and Jesus? What's the distance between you and the Son of God? There's a lot of distance between this Son and God. There's a lot of distance between this Son and His family. He was off in a, a far country, and when he was off in that far country, he lost everything that he had. He was living it up. He thought everything was good. And then when he lost everything, and he suddenly found himself starving and hungry, he came to his senses. He realized that all of his sin didn't make a lick of sense. And then he thought, wait a minute. You know, the hired hands that work for my dad, they're going to have plenty of bread. The hired hands were kind of like, temps. They were, they were day laborers. They were only contracted with for that day. And so here he is standing in this pig pen, standing in this pig slop, and he's standing there in the middle of the afternoon, and he's going, hey, you know what? My older brother hired people this morning back on the farm. Those people are going to have plenty of bread for their families tonight, and I'm sitting here starving in a pig pen. And there's a hint in the language of the verse that says he's also remembering that his dad was a good guy and was even kind to the hired laborers. 
He, he was gracious. He was generous. He would do more than he had to do. And probably somewhere in his mind, he's starting to think, you know what? I went to that good, kind, gracious, generous, sacrificing man who's good to everyone. And I went up into his face, got right in his grill, and I said, I wish you were dead so I could get my money. And all of that is is hitting him while he's standing in this pig pen. He's coming to his senses. He's realizing that, that what he did was wrong. And now what? What's he going to do now that he's come to his senses? He's going to come up with a plan. Listen to verse 18. I will get up and go to my father. Coming to his senses doesn't mean that he went over in the corner of the pig pen and kind of pouted, you know, and said, oh, I've been a bad boy. I should change. No. No, he was He was moving. He wasn't having a a come-to-your-senses moment and going, all right, now i got this good psychological crutch. It'll help me to to pull myself up from this slop, and I'm going to go make something of myself, and and then then, then my dad will see. No, nothing like that. he's, He's moving. He's really coming to his senses. He's really understanding what he has done. You know, you can say you're sorry to the cows come home, or maybe for this guy to the pigs come home. You can say you're sorry, and you can say you're sorry, and you can say you're sorry, but at the end of the day, a lot of times, when you say you're sorry, it's just kind of a flimsy, temporary band-aid. This son, he wasn't saying he was sorry. Think about what he's doing. He is about to go back where his sin and his shame will be the loudest. He's going back to the place that he will be the most embarrassed that he will ever be in his life. That's where he's going back. That's not feeling sorry. That's, that's something else. When he got back there, it would all be heaped on him. He'd have nowhere to run. Everybody would know what he had done. And everybody would be shocked that he would have the nerve to show his face again. But he's going back because he's not just sorry. There's something else happening. So what's he going to say to his dad when he gets back? Listen again in verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned. Those are the three words to freedom. I have sinned. See, that's, that's more than being sorry. I have sinned is, is more than going, oh, I, was in the, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I have sinned is, is more than just thinking, well, I know I offended my spouse. I, I know I, I exasperated the kids. No, I know I, I dishonored my parents. Yes, I, I aggravated my teacher. I frustrated the boss. I annoyed the neighbor. Yeah, I know. No, it's more than that. It's not just saying, I know I've done these things. I have sinned moves you into another realm. You're owning what has happened, but don't miss what is also happening according to the grace and the mercy of God. When you get to the point that you start saying those three words, you are moving toward the greatest freedom in the universe. Those three words move you toward the rich rewards of true freedom. 
How do they do that? Why do they do that? Listen to what son says next. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's not just feeling sorry about his sin. He's not just off in the corner of the pig being going, oh, I'm a bad boy. He's not just thinking, man, I, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, there's something else happening here. See, with, with stubborn arrogance, he marched towards sin. He knew what he was doing, and he didn't care. It, it didn't bother him at all. But then he came to his senses, and he didn't just care. He realized that, that he had really let a lot of people down, but, but there was something else happening. He had sinned against the creator and the owner of heaven and earth and all of humanity and all of the universe. He had sinned against God. And he was owning that. About a thousand years before Jesus told this parable, King David got confronted with some of his sin. And this is what he prayed. Psalm 51, verse 4. Lord, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What was he praying about? Well, he had pursued an immoral relationship with another man's wife. And he was confronted with it. He had wronged a lot of humans. But he was overwhelmed that he had wronged the Almighty God. I read something years ago that I think gives some good imagery to what happens with David. It goes like this. David broke the tenth commandment by coveting another man's wife. David broke the ninth commandment by lying and creating a tricky plan to get what he wanted. David broke the eighth commandment by taking what was not his. David broke the seventh commandment by committing adultery. David broke the sixth commandment by, com by arranging the murder of another man. And ultimately, David broke the first commandment by putting himself and his desires before God. Bless his heart, right? <laughs> That's not a good checklist. And it's the nature of sin, right? So, so the one sin is the son goes to the father and, and really hatefully says, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. And then that one sin, it just kept going and kept going and kept going. You see, God is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. So all of my sin and all of your sin ultimately is connected to him. There, there's no way around that. So David, a king of a huge country, sinned towards some people, but he was overwhelmed that he had sinned toward God because then his sin toward God dishonored the God of the universe and created more conflict with him and people. The son, King David, they said, I have sinned. Those three words lead to freedom. How? How do those three words lead to freedom? Well, they lead to freedom because those three words lead to God. Sometimes we forget that. And it's one of the reasons that we don't always say, I have sinned, because you know what? They're kind of hard words. We come up with other words that we use. C.S. Lewis said this. The trouble is that we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. 
He goes on, we shall go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. None of us have ever done that, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we all do it. So here's just a question. With, with no, no excuses, when was the last time you openly and truly confessed sin to God? If you've got to think really hard about it, that's not really a good sign. You see, as, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we should be confessing sin over and over and over again. Why? why? Why would we waste our time doing that? Let me ask you a question. If, if you're hanging out somewhere by the lake or in your backyard this week and, I don't know, you're messing with horseshoes or moving some railroad ties or something and, and you get a splinter in your hand and the next day you can tell, man, this, this thing's getting infected. Are you going to go, uh, no big deal, you know? I'm just going to leave that thing in there. Yeah, my finger is turning rainbow colors, and it's swelling three days later, but ah, it'll be all right. Everything's good. I, I think I'll just leave it. Now, see, the, the whole idea is if that splinter is in there, we would need to get it out, or the infection's going to grow, and it's going to get worse, and we might even lose a finger. So we wouldn't be foolish with that, and yet we would be foolish with sin. Somehow we think that, that the splinter would magically disintegrate, and we kind of think that sin is just going to magically disintegrate. It doesn't. Unconfessed sin does not just magically disintegrate. Trey Newbill says this, We humans have been hiding our sin since the beginning. One of the first things Adam and Eve did after they disobeyed was hide from God. If we are left to ourselves, we will mask it and pretend no grievance has occurred. But one of the worst places for Christians to live is a spiritual ghost town. Spiritual ghost town is where, hey, you know what? I'm not confessing any sin. Sin doesn't exist. Everything's good. No, that's a spiritual ghost town. That's a town of one. You're, you're living in denial. She goes on to say this. Silence may protect our self-image, but it also leaves our shame intact and kills our forward progress. Listen, if, if you want to be free, then you need to understand that, that sin will kill your freedom. It kills your freedom. And it kills you moving forward in your freedom. I, I, I loved just, just the beauty of what Colin prayed earlier. And just how authoritatively he, he drew us to salvation and, and what salvation is and what that freedom means. That in the moment I breathe my last, that I'm free. And I'm free before then as well. If we keep our sin bottled up inside of us, it'll rot our soul and it'll rob us of the joy that God desires to give us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So really the question for any of our hearts is this, do we want this kind of forgiveness? I mean, do we want God to forgive us or do we want to kind of live in our sin and live in our rebellion, kind of live in the pig pen and maybe only discover later that we were never really saved at all? 
because we actually love sin. We don't hate it. We don't confess it. We don't get rid of it. We, we live in it. We never have come to our senses. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Listen, unconfessed sin, its purpose is to get you in a corner and to keep you in a corner. And when you're in that corner, that sin will become your master. It'll own you. It'll run you. And you won't even know it. You'll be thinking you're good and and you're running your life your way, but that sin is actually mastering and controlling you. Looking back in history, the powerful spiritual revivals, especially in America, they didn't start because there was a fancy preacher that showed up on Pacapu night. No, those, those revivals, they started because the people of God started being overwhelmed with their sin. They started being overwhelmed with their rebellion. They started confessing and, and dealing with their sin. Maybe a real simple way for us to think about sin in general and confessing is this. Keep short accounts with God. Don't, don't leave the debt of sin laying around. Pay that sin off with confession. Move quickly to deal with it. See, this son, he, he got off in a corner. Boy, sin got him off in a corner. Sin isolated him from his family. Sin isolated him from his home. Sin isolated him from God. But here's what's interesting. Through the strange mercy of his dad, going against normal customs and and giving him his inheritance, the fact that he got his inheritance, that he went and thought he got everything he wanted and then lost it all, through that strange mercy from his father and through the grace of God, this son, this prodigal, he, he came to his senses. He came to his senses, he he realized he was wrong, and with no lame excuses, he just said, I've sinned. I have sinned. He owned it. The reason I have sinned are three words that will lead you to freedom is because they are an open expression that what you need most is not an excuse. What you need most is is not a pass. I have sinned is an open expression that you understand that what you need most is forgiveness and the only way you can be free is to be forgiven and this forgiveness and this freedom only comes from one place. That kind of forgiveness, that kind of freedom, the kind of forgiveness and freedom that exists before the 4th of July and on the 4th of July and after the 4th of July and after we breathe our last, that type of forgiveness, that type of freedom can only be found in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Nowhere else can it be found. And this is the promise that the Son of God makes to you. Take those three words and then own these words from Jesus. This is his promise. John 8, verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. 
if the Son makes you free. You will be free indeed.